Hello, everybody. Welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, our show about issues concerning the energy industry. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, are my co-hosts. How are you doing today, Christine? I'm good. How are you, Dylan? I am sick, so if you hear my voice sounding different, that would be why. But take that, taking that out of account, is that what the opposite of in account, into account means? I'm not sure. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. I'm I'm not entirely sure. So removing removing that, I'm actually doing pretty good. Uh Aaron, you're you're sitting at the table with Christine, I I believe. How are you? I'm good. I'm in Denver and when I left Austin, it was starting to get up to the high mid to high 80s and here it's only going to stay in the low 80s, so I'm happy about that. My lift ride over to Christine's house this morning from um, the hotel. Our, my driver was from Ethiopia, and he told me that one of the things he likes the most about Denver is he can possibly experience all four seasons in one day. <laughs> it's very true. It is. Denver has very variable weather, if that makes sense. I think it Tra- does. <laughs> Aaron, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of how many podcasts we've recorded where you've actually recorded from Austin. You're always tra- you're always traveling. You're a citizen of the world, that's for sure. Thank you. Well, at least of the continental United States. That could be a good question for our audience is how many podcasts has have I record recorded in Austin versus other cities? Yeah, if if you paid attention and you know what percentage of our podcasts Aaron has recorded from cities that are not Austin, Texas, hit us up on Twitter. Uh, But as to the business of today, we have a very special guest, the founder and CEO of BitBazaar, Dr. Erfan Ibrahim. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's good to talk to you again. We we did an ETS panel on cybersecurity and the microgrid. Uh, Really enjoyed doing that with you. You were definitely the, the star of the show there, so I was really Excited to have you come on and talk some more about cybersecurity. Yes, I recall that panel discussion. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about BitBazaar and what the company does and what you do? Yes. So first, the name. Uh, I named it the BitBazaar because I was born and raised in Baghdad, Iraq. And Baghdad was one of the three original bazaars of the old civilization, the other two being Damascus and Cairo. And because I was involved in digital technology, that's where the bit came from. And the makes it definitive. So it's the definitive marketplace for digital ideas. So back in the day, in the bazaar, people would come from different parts of the world and not only exchange goods, but they would also exchange ideas about their experiences from the different parts of the world where they had traveled. So I wanted to create such a marketplace for most innovative ideas to flourish. And so in 2001, I created the Bid Bazaar. And for the last 16, 17 years, I have been between my job stints providing consulting services to a variety of verticals, including healthcare, financial services, telecom, government sector, as well as the energy sector. So while I was consulting, I came across the Electric Power Research Institute back in 2007 and did a consulting stint with them that led to a position over there as a technical executive. So what the Bid Bazaar does is it provides consulting services that helps asset owners in different verticals align their IT goals with their business goals. And so cybersecurity, networking, network management, and data interoperability, all of those areas are covered within the scope of the BitBazaar's consulting services. So now that I have come out of NREL as of a couple months ago, I'm bringing to market many of the ideas that I have developed over the last 23 years of being in the field of telecom, networking, security, and communications, and seeing how they apply 
to critical infrastructure, starting with electricity, but then also looking at water, wastewater, and other critical infrastructures as defined by DHS. Yeah, and that that uh, that cybersecurity piece and critical infrastructure is what we're here to talk about today. Uh, it's something you hear a lot in you know, in places like ETS, uh, where people are talking about cybersecurity. You know, there's it's always the, the discussion is always is always framed around you know protecting this critical assets and the systems in these in this problem face in a very problem facing kind of way but uh what do you, what do you think is wrong about the way that we talk about cybersecurity in the energy space what are what are we ignoring when we have these very broad, broad discussions so the first thing is you never uh, secure infrastructure what you secure are transactions on infrastructure infrastructure is vulnerable by virtue of transactions so right from the start, the narrative is wrong. The most secure infrastructure is one that doesn't work because nothing, the hacker cannot do anything to it. So what hackers do is they look at the transactions that are going on on any infrastructure and try to leverage those transactions to do their nefarious acts. So just saying that we need to secure critical assets is the wrong narrative we need to secure the critical transactions on infrastructure. That's a very different approach to security. Yeah, and in our, in our ETS panel, you, you talked a lot about uh, the insider threat, which are hackers who are able to attack systems from the inside. So what about that threat isn't being addressed and how do you prevent your systems from being taken advantage of by an insider threat versus an outsider threat? So we have, I would call an obsession with confidentiality in the market. So this whole idea of having as strong a username and password as possible, having the most sophisticated encryption techniques in place, two-factor, three-factor authentication, all of these controls are meant to keep the outsiders outside. They do absolutely nothing for the insider threat that has access to all these credentials. So if you really review the architecture of cybersecurity in most enterprises today, they are remiss in this area of looking at the insider threat that has access to all of these IT-centric security controls that I listed. So the way you would address the insider threat, which is not being done today, is by having a very granular role-based access control inside the enterprise. The obsession right now is protecting the outsider from coming in and reaching certain assets. But when the person is inside, they've been authenticated, they have access to clear text data, there are absolutely very few controls there. And so the first thing I would recommend is to go back to your network design and make sure that the access control list defined in the layer two, layer three switches and routers are set up in such a way that IP addresses inside the enterprise are only allowed to access those IP addresses that are justified by a use case. And if the use case is not there, it doesn't matter how many times they've been authenticated, they should not have access to an IP address that they have no need to go to. If we just did that, we would significantly reduce the attack surfaces for the insider threat. Then the second thing we need to do is, even though those IP addresses that are justified by a use case are accessible by this insider threat, it doesn't mean that we become blind to what they're doing. And that is where intrusion detection comes in, that on the critical pipes, we need to look at the traffic that is going figure out what services are being rendered by that traffic, and then look within those services to see if the context of the command and the values that are being presented and read and written over are legitimate. This is called context-based intrusion detection. So after you've applied the granular access control list 
and you've applied the very strict rules on the firewalls in front of each of the areas and properly segmented the network and quieted down the network, you have now a possibility to have effective context-based intrusion detection that is protocol savvy. This I'm speaking now specifically on critical infrastructure on the operational technology or OT side. It's very difficult to do on the IT side. And the main reason for that is that the data traffic on the IT side has such variability. There's so many business applications running that it's very difficult to set up filters that are context-based. So the best you can do on the IT side is putting signature-based malware IDS systems like the ones provided, let's say, from FireEye or Palo Alto or Cisco or other companies. But on the OT side, in addition to the signature-based malware IDS systems, you need context-based. And in, to protect some of the very critical pieces of infrastructure, you'd actually have to put inline blocking tools that only allow certain commands and block others. Now, there are lots of data diodes in the market. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about a two-way hardware layer filter that is protocol savvy. When you put all of these controls and you have a centralized syslog system that can take the anomalies and bring them to a common syslog server and then visualize it on a Splunk-like tool with bar charts and pie charts and graphs, then you have the possibility of having enough situational awareness to monitor what the insider threat is doing and block them when their nefarious activities reach a nuisance level that can be business disruptive. I guess one thing that I'm still having a hard time grappling with uh, in regards to what you said on the panel and what, what you just said, th those are really solid recommendations, but who represents the insider threat? Is it someone who works? Is it someone who works in the company? I remember you also said something about like phishing scams, that sort of thing. Like how are, like is the, yeah. is the definition of the insider threat that the that the inf, that the access has been given willingly, and is it is it hackers? Is it pe like people who yeah. work in there? So there are different profiles of the insider threat. The first profile is that of a disgruntled employee who's got an ax to grind with their employer. So they have access to everything. They have a legit laptop or a computer that they can connect. Uh, they are given these open ports where they can connect. So they can do mischief all day long until they're caught. That's one profile. And that is one of the most dangerous profiles because none of the IT-centric controls that I spoke about username and password and authentication and encryption works on these people. The second profile is that of an advanced persistent threat. This could be from a nation state or a nefarious organization, whether in the US or outside the US. And what these entities do is they rely on phishing schemes, social engineering schemes, to find a pivot on the trusted side of the enterprise network, either through an email with a link that gives them a callback facility, or uh, they may find a vulnerability in the software of a firewall and take advantage of it and find their way past the corporate firewall. Or they may provide some executable on a memory stick leave it somewhere for people to plug it in, and then it creates that callback routine. There are a variety of ways in which they do that. And then the third profile is that of what we would call industrial espionage rings. That may be trying to exfiltrate data from a company that is their competitor. So they may even hire uh, professionals to do that. And again, they use these types of vectors like social engineering schemes, or they will come in and socialize and get access within the enterprise for periods of time and do their mischief. So the insider threat is a canopy, and there are many different profiles within it. But the solutions are all 
similar based on solutions are all the same yes you cannot catch the insider threat if you have a noisy network you're going to have a noisy network if you don't design it right good network design starts from business use cases that define a set of transactions that occur on a piece of infrastructure those requirements then lead to network design that only allows those transactions and nothing else when you do that you have naturally created a hyper quiet network where access is only provided when justified by a business operational process and when it is actually rendered it's being observed by intrusion detection systems that know what the protocol is and what you're doing if you don't do all of these things the insider threat will remain and will continue either exfiltrating data disrupting functions or fuzzing data causing trouble for uh, the ability to recover so these are very credible threats and when i was working in the financial services industry in the mid 2000s helping secure the data uh, that was stored of clients i found that more than 70% of the threat was the insider threat the external hackers were only 30% so this is a serious problem and it takes on the average for a utility 229 days from the time a vulnerability is created in the infrastructure to the time when they detect it and do something about it so that means that any vulnerability inside a utility on the critical infrastructure side could be monetized for 7 months that's a huge gap and until we don't start following these best practices we're going to remain vulnerable to such types of attack. So, one of the things you mentioned when you're talking about intrusion detection is that there should be efforts taken on on the OT side as well as the IT side. So, what areas within utilities, I guess groups within the organization should be working together um to make sure that this cybersecurity isn't happening within silos within organizations it sounds like a lot of times that you know the IT people aren't really talking with the OT people and there really isn't any cohesive cybersecurity strategy so what what groups within utilities do you think should be working together um to to push out a, a good cybersecurity plan I've spoken about this at length uh, there are three essential ingredients to coming up with comprehensive solution the first is that you have to have the business line managers in the room because they are the ones who control the use cases they are the ones generating the wealth by the transactions then the cyber community that maintains the ids systems and and the firewalls and the antivirus need to be in the room and then the networking people need to be in the room that open what i call the plumbing to allow for these transactions to occur and the architecture for the cybersecurity and network needs to be built based on consensus by all three parties the problem today that i'm finding is that the cyber people tell the network people in enterprises don't get in our way just set up the pipes allow the plumbing to occur we are going to put the security controls that is an absolute mistake imagine if you had a presidential compound it didn't have any walls it had no secret service it just had a front door how often would that door get violated by people trying to get into the presidential palace to think about that this is the equivalent of what the cyber community in enterprises is asking the networking people to do the networking people are like the walls they are like the secret service you can't just expect to get to a firewall or to a server and then expect the controls of that endpoint to protect against attacks this is the essence of denial of service attack so until the networking and cyber people don't work together to support the use cases they are out of luck in front of this professional hacker 
who takes advantage of this fact. That's why we have the P in advanced persistent threat. They're persistent. They'll keep trying till they get over the barrier. So you have to have a layered defense approach, a defense in depth approach, such that you frustrate the hacker by so many barriers between where they are and where they need to go. They lose motivation and go somewhere else, which is exactly what you want to do. We're doing some, some research right now around cybersecurity and field area networks, just looking at you know, some of the more distributed assets that are that are out on the grid and the approaches that utilities are are taking to the communication networks, you know, around those those devices. How do you see cybersecurity differing, you know, among different types of communication networks? Or do you see it really all being the the same the same approach? So when you are talking about field equipment, especially in unmanned facilities, you have a new cyber threat, and that threat is physical access, because all the logical barriers fall apart in front of physical access. These sophisticated attackers, whether they hit a smart meter or an inverter connected to a solar panel, or they connect to a wind turbine, can logically insert data into a trusted network from that point. So the first thing you want to do is make sure that all field devices, when they connect to the switch, have a simple 252 mask on the IP network. What that does is it forces the asset and the switch to be on their own logical subnet. And if you set up a simple policy at that switch, an access control list that says, this subnet can only talk upstream, but not to another device that is connected to the switch. That itself reduces the cybersecurity threat significantly. We don't do that. If you look at network designs today, they will have 14 or 20 or 30 uh, DER assets all within one logical subnet with any-to-any -any connectivity. And they do that for the sake of expediency. But from a cybersecurity perspective, it's a huge vulnerability because all a, a hacker needs to do is have physical access to one device and suddenly they have reachability to all the other devices. Now they can shove malware into them, do a denial of service attack, a variety of things. So setting up the, just even the subnet mask IP address correctly can reduce that. The next thing you want to do is monitor the traffic on that, typically these field devices have either NCC 1219 for smart meters, or they have a Modbus type protocol running, or DNP3, or 61850, or OPC if it's a smart factory. These are well-established protocols. We have filters available that can monitor these protocols. And so if someone even gets physical access and is trying to shove malware or do other nefarious activities upstream since they can't reach the other devices because of the 252 mask, these uh, filters can block that traffic. Or at the minimum, have context-based intrusion detection systems down in the field so that they can detect this kind of nefarious behavior and report on it. We are doing none of that today. All we've got is signature-based malware sitting on very big pipes on very noisy networks, catching a bunch of false positives. So how is that going to secure? So it's like as if we're at war with our own intellect and then wondering why we're not secure. We learn better practices in school. But when it comes to application, it seems like expediency has become the currency. The, the cyber people say to the network people, don't get in our way. The business people say, don't block my access to anything. And everyone just falls for that pressure rather than applying these sound network hygiene principles to build what I call natural immunity in digital systems. What about, uh, what about things like smart cities? Uh, and I mean, I've heard different conversations around, you know, util some utility networks potentially being leveraged whether it might be street lighting or, you know, some other aspect of, of building a smarter city. 
And it seems with with those, I mean, you know, you you're you're developing different connections with with different networks and you know different organizations that, that go outside of utilities. I mean, what what are your perspectives on that and and, and where yeah. those things are heading? So I consider smart city as a marketing concept. It doesn't change the essence of good network design and cybersecurity controls. Because even though we're calling it a smart city, it's nothing but a mosaic of autonomous zones in which different things are happening. And so as long as we maintain the sanctity of those zones and only move data from one zone to another based on need, we can have the smart city, but not give away our cybersecurity posture in the process. But that's not the way people, especially the economists in smart city and the what I would call largely the non-science community is looking at smart city. They want any-to-any -any connectivity all the time, any day. That is not congruent with cybersecurity. So we have to be very careful when we talk about smart city, the marketing concept and the technical concept. In the technical concept, the planners of the smart city need to sit down with the networking and cyber community of the different stakeholder groups to ensure that only those pipes are open that justify a business transaction and only during the times when they need to be and not at other times. And also make sure that these network hygiene principles and these idea systems are there. If we don't do that, my fear is that we could have cascading failures of things that we never even thought would be connected. Today, the internet protocol has become the universal fabric for all this infrastructure. Now that's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it gives you universal addressability and reachability, so you can connect any two things you like without worrying about the underlying hardware. But at the same time, it gives any-to-any -any connectivity to the hacker also. So we have to tame the internet protocol to only be allowed to make connections that are justified by those use cases. One of the things that's come up recently when I've been talking to folks about smart cities and and you know secure transactions is it seems like there there's a group of people that really think that smart cities is largely going to be based in the cloud, the energy cloud, and that's how they're going to keep a lot of smart cities aspects secure. But then there's also a large group of people who think maybe blockchain um, is the future to, to keeping things within smart cities secure. So what do you think kind of, what do you think the role both the energy cloud, the cloud will play as well as blockchain could play in kind of creating these secure transactions as we move forward? Right. So the cloud looks very secure to the small time player in critical infrastructure because they don't have the wherewithal to hire enough people to secure their infrastructure. So they think that they're gonna find security in the cloud. Think of the cloud like a freeway. There are guardrails on a freeway to make sure that the cars don't fall off the freeway, especially in elevated areas. That does not provide you security. It just keeps the cars on the freeway. You still need your safety belts and you still need your airbags in your vehicle in case there's an accident. So I do not believe in relegating cybersecurity to the cloud. There may be security of the cloud, but there may not be any security for your data in the cloud. That security of your data in the cloud is like your seat belts and your airbags. And the security of the cloud is like the guardrails on the freeway. So you have to do both. So what I would suggest for companies that are looking at the cloud as a possible way of doing their transactions, fine, go ahead and do that. But when the data is going out and when the data is coming in, watch it like a hawk because there may be an insider threat on the cloud side. How do we know? that tomorrow that cloud company is not bought by a nation state or a nefarious organization. Who says in the capitalist model that such purchases cannot occur? So it's not enough to just say, 
I'm going to move it to the cloud, therefore it's secure. You have to look at your transactions within the cloud. Now, blockchain is an emerging technology, and I'm part of the blockchain consortium with Tony Girotti and Mark Knight and Dave Harden and many other people. And we're going to be presenting a series of webinars starting June 1st on this subject of blockchain in the energy sector. Because I do see some areas, especially on the edge, when we have got an eBay kind of transaction going on between two end users, uh, that blockchain could be very helpful in maintaining the integrity of the data in the transaction when it changes many hands. But blockchain inside a traditional transmission and distribution operational network is an overkill and may actually cause so much overhead that it could affect transactions. So there's a time and place for each of these things. So the answer is there's no panacea. You have to look at the use cases and architect the appropriate security controls based on the use cases and the infrastructure on which they run and not just come up with one, the thing solves all problems. Change in direction here. Uh, throughout, you know, throughout this whole conversation, um, uh, I re re really like the way you've been framing your answers in that you always say, here's the problem, this is, this is my recommendation. Because a lot of what I hear when people talk about cybersecurity threats, they, uh, a, lot of, a lot of utilities like to say, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not ready. The threat, the threats are there and we're way weaker than you, th than you think we are. And it's really, you know, it's, it's terrifying, but um, I, that's why I really like uh, the fact that you're thinking from a solutions perspective. So uh, what, what would your assessment be of cybersecurity technologies currently in the market and how they're being currently being applied? I think that uh, the marketing programs of business schools have trained a community to go way beyond what the product offers in their rhetoric. And just by putting things in shiny brochures and fancy words, they think they can capture the intrigue of the customer and somehow solve the problem at a technical level. It doesn't quite work out like that. So I see a lot of hype when I go to conferences like RSA and DEF CON and Red Hat, where vendors are making all kinds of grandiose claims about how they're going to secure. And when you really drill down, as I do when I go to their booth, I find out that you know someone's got an authentication scheme, someone's got an encryption scheme, someone has an IDS system, and then it's very limited in what it can do in real infrastructure. So my assessment is that there are solutions out there, but the hype far exceeds what they can do. And that an asset owner like a utility needs to be very sober, build an architecture for cybersecurity for their infrastructure first, independent of vendor and technology, and then go shopping and drill down with each vendor's past their PDF documents to figure out what exactly they do and see how they fit into their infrastructure. So imagine each utility being like a carpet weaver that knows what the picture looks like and then goes and buys the yarn to make the carpet, as opposed to the yarn place telling them what the carpet should look like, which is exactly what's going on today. There's clearly no magic bullet solution, but through this architecture that you talk about, uh, that that's basically the the path the path forward is the is the conglomeration of all of these different steps that come together to create a more secure more secure business. So how how do you recommend that a utility goes about creating the architecture for a successful cybersecurity program? First, getting the networking and cybersecurity people to start eating lunch in the break areas together and helping them understand the value of building this joint architecture. And the utilities that I have visited across the country, and I've visited several, are beginning to 
realize the value of it after they hear me for an hour, hour and a half. Many people go and try to sell things to utilities with very limited experience in networking and security. So the utility folks dismiss them as saying, yeah, they're nice, polite people, but they are not real domain experts. That does not happen when I walk into a room because I started from help desk at Pacific Bell in 1995 and worked my way up to where I was supervising the entire Knox that managed the Western backbone of the internet. So I have seen every kind of digital network that there is over the last 23 years. And I know the functionalities and dysfunctionalities of good and bad network design. So when I have this conversation with the cyber and networking people sitting in a room together, they both respect me. And I will tell you that we need more such people like me that have that domain expertise that can come out of the colleges and universities and the national labs and work in the private sector to bring these best practices to fruition. If we don't do that, these communities will remain in isolation. They'll keep finger pointing every time there's a breach or a disruption of an OT operation and the problem will not get solved. Now, the question is, we have several integrators in the market like IBM, Accenture, SAIC, why don't they solve the problem? Because there's no business interest for them in solving this problem. Their, their business interest is in maintaining presence at the utilities, constantly trying to solve the problem. In much the same way, the medical industry keeps the patient engaged rather than curing them with a holistic approach. So there is an element of disingenuous behavior that's going on that ultimately affects the end user in higher prices of electricity, insecure networks, and possibility for disruption in the future. Now, given these vulnerabilities in our electric sector or other infrastructure, why aren't hacks happening on a daily basis? The main reason for that is that our government in the US has made it very clear to people overseas that if you do that to us, we will consider that an act of war and we may respond militarily. That is not something a rational hacker wants on their head. So they are right now in the business of doing reconnaissance and gathering information such that in a future date when they need that information, they could use it. I want to shut that whole operation down with these best practices. But it will take a change of culture in the utility industry to be more inclusive and think of a holistic approach to security rather than staying in the silos of cyber technologies and network design in, in isolation. So there are four levels of security that, are, that go into this architecture. The first level is what I call network hygiene, where you set up the appropriate firewall policies and switch policies that only support use cases. The second level of security in the architecture is intrusion detection of the malware kind, where you put in IDS systems to catch malware coming from the public internet or from uh, negligent employees who brought laptops with malware in them. The third level of security is through these context-based intrusion detection systems that are protocol savvy and these inline blocking tools, uh, like for instance, the Blackridge uh, TAC, or for instance, the SecLab Denellis platform. These types of inline blocking tools are very helpful to protecting critical infrastructure. The last frontier of cybersecurity is at the microprocessor level within the power systems themselves. And Department of Energy of the US is funding projects in that space of building what are called resilient power systems. The CODEF project is a good example of that. I believe ABB and a few others are working in that area where the microprocessor in the power system knows good commands from bad commands and will not execute bad commands if sent to it. This is what I call non-network security. And it's the fourth and final frontier in the cybersecurity architecture. 
We're not quite there yet in the commercial product, but you know, in five to 10 years, we could get there. So when you apply all these four layers, the hygiene, the signature-based malware IDS systems, the context-based intrusion and inline blocking, and finally, resilience at the microprocessor level, then you've got an architecture. Short of that, you've just got a wall that could be penetrated eventually. And all of that is possible with technology currently available today, yes? I would say the first three are. The fourth one is work in progress. Because remember, one thing you don't want to do at the microprocessor level is stop a legitimate command from occurring in an extraneous situation. So there has to be a lot of intelligence built into the microprocessor to know that this is not a one-off situation and not block it. Because sometimes you have to take some special actions when certain physical circumstances exist, like there may be a fire in a substation. So there are certain functions you would do which are not considered normal, or there's a flood in the substation. So it sounds like there's going to be, or artificial intelligence is going to play a really large role in cybersecurity moving forward, maybe even getting to that fourth layer you talked about. So like, how, how much of a role do you see artificial intelligence playing in allowing utilities to really reach this very secure model? Right. I think it will play a role, but the temptation should not be to centralize the AI. This is why I am not in favor of the cloud doing all the computing to figure out right from wrong, because the latency associated with that is too much for critical infrastructure. So you have to create a balance between distributed computing and intelligence at the edge and cloud computing, because that distinction will break the TCP session, the transport control protocol session. Why is that important? Many hackers exploit live TCP sessions to perform their nefarious activities as far as the TCP session would go. In much the same way, pollution in the blood can flow and ruin organs everywhere the blood flows or pathogens in the blood. So TCP session in a network to me is like bloodstream in a body. So if you localize the TCP session to a particular area with distributed computing and intelligence and create a new TCP session that takes the summary or results of the transaction back to the cloud, I'm in favor of that. But I'm not in favor of making the edge dumb and virtualizing everything in the cloud and computing everything there. Because from a data fuzzing perspective, as well as from a cyber attack perspective, that's a very vulnerable architecture for the insider threat. I think what we're seeing right now, and Christine had mentioned this this report that we're doing over cybersecurity and field area networks, we're actually finding that utilities right now are looking more at centralized security models, um, but maybe eventually moving towards more decentralized cybersecurity models. So why do you think it is that utilities are, are primarily focused on, on keeping these things centralized right now? It's because of expediency. If I were to bring some of my folks from defense and intelligence who work for me uh, to them and put the fear of God in them, they will decentralize very quickly. I have people with TSSCI clearances, including polygraph, that have done offensive work for our country and laugh at the controls of many of these utilities when I present it to them. And when I told them about the layered defense architecture that I came up with after 23 years of being in the business, they said, yeah, that would work. They said we, would, we could eventually you know, cause some trouble, but yeah, that would discourage us. Because remember, the hacker does not challenge the most complicated part of your infrastructure. What they do is they look for the weak spot. And the problem with centralized architectures for doing the computation for security is that it becomes a single point of failure. This is exactly what you don't want to do. So I know why they're doing it, because they don't have that many 
people at sitting out in the substations to analyze stuff. I get that. And they don't have the infrastructure right now to do it because they have not put much edge computing out there. And then the vendor tells them, don't worry about it. We've got secure tunnels. We have, you know, SSL running. Yeah, but SSL is no good if you're sitting on either end of the SSL session and have access to the data. That the vendor doesn't want to talk about. So there is a little bit of the blind leading the blind going on in our industry. There are people that have academic training that is very IT-centric, mostly based on financial services, healthcare, telecom, and they are bringing that, those mental models into critical infrastructure protection for field devices like in electric sector or oil and gas and water, and it just doesn't work. That data center idea of having physical security and having three badges before you get in and an iris, you know, retinal scan stuff, that doesn't happen in the field. You'd be lucky if you have a lock that can hold against a big hammer. That's the physical security. So the mindset has to change. And unfortunately, it's not changing. We're just about out of time here. But I, I actually I wanted to ask uh, because just because we've been we've been having a really big book focused on the podcast these last couple of episodes. So I, I was wondering if you knew of a good book on the on the topic of uh, cybersecurity, something that's come out maybe in the last like five years or so uh, that you would recommend people who want to learn more can read. I haven't seen a book on the subject, but I can tell you a few names of people that get it. And what people should do is follow them in social media. Because today, the real creative ideas are not being put in books. They're being put in blogs. They're being put in LinkedIn posts. You know, I do a post on LinkedIn. I have seen some Z Prime people following that uh, in the last six weeks. That is where the creative stuff is. So there are lots of books that will tell you how to draw straight lines and do intrusion detection and cyber. But that holistic approach that I'm talking about, I would say that there are about a dozen people that really know it well. And some of those people, I'll name them. One of them is Daniel Thanos. Daniel Thanos knows this stuff really well. Or Chris Blask, or a Justin Searle. You know, these are the types of people that are thought leaders that do work in the area of understanding vulnerabilities and talk about it. So my recommendation would be for people to track such people and find out what they're saying and try to implement the guidance. And when I sit in a room with these types of people, they, we are very like-minded. But there's some disconnect between subject matter experts like us, and what the integrators are telling the utility. And somehow, I hopefully through a medium like Z Prime, we may be able to bridge that gap, such that the integrators will take our advice and apply it in the utilities, because they have the wherewithal to do it. I can only speak, I have a small company, I can only do so much, but it would be very nice if they would pick up these practices, get past their own denial, and then start implementing this so that the asset owner doesn't waste a lot of money and also get secure solutions. That's going to be all the time we have today, but uh, I want to thank you, Erfan, for coming on the show. It was very, very informative. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you to all of you for giving me this time to be able to speak about this in the detail that I have, and hopefully people can benefit from my advice. We certainly hope so too, because I think I, think I speak for everyone when I say that we want our power to be secure and our utilities to be functional. So that's, I think it's, yeah, a secure utility is good for everyone. Uh, one, one final thing that I would like to say 
in conclusion is that if you get any feedback from this podcast in writing, please send it to me so I can address it and address the issues that people who are hearing this podcast may bring up. If they'd like to ask you some follow-up questions, how can they, how can they find you on social media? They can find me on LinkedIn, Erfan Ibrahim at the Bazaar. I have a website also, tbbllc.com. Uh, they can come and with, I can show them a complete trademark methodology that I've developed over all these concepts that I just spoke about. And I call it TBB safe, S for strategy, A for architecture, F for field deployment, and E for education. So it's a complete life cycle methodology for protecting any digital technology in any vertical. Aaron, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks, Dylan. I had a good time. I, I think the cybersecurity talk or conversation is really interesting because a lot of different people have a lot of different perspectives on how to move forward um, with cybersecurity. And I'm, I'm just really happy that we got to take some time to talk about it today and, and hopefully start to bring some of these conversations together and the different ideas that are they're going into how to create the most secure grid possible. Uh, Christine? Thanks for being on this time around. Yeah, for sure, Dylan. Um, I mean, just to echo Aaron's comments about uh, the importance of cybersecurity and all the different perspectives that are out there. I mean, cybersecurity is always just that, I think that hot topic that people get a little afraid to talk about. So I'm glad we were able to, to chat about it here on the podcast today. As always, you can find our research and media at etsinsights.com. You can find us on social media at DY Lockwood, at Aaron underscore Hardick, at HC underscore Richards, and at Z Prime underscore Research. My name is Dylan, and we hope to see you all next time. Mm-hmm.